good. Uh, most of you, I think, would have been here last week when we started our series uh, on the letter to the Philippians. And Christoph, uh, he got pulled the uh, unlucky straw. He says, you know, the introduction um, is just kind of laying the, the territory. And he called the series Surprised by Joy. And he did so for two reasons. Firstly, he says, uh, Paul is incredibly joyful in this letter. You can almost feel his excitement at times. In fact, the first line of the section that I'm looking at today, verse 3, should really have an exclamation mark at the end of it. He doesn't say, I thank my God every time I remember you. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. He is, he's full of something. And we think it's joy. The man is plain happy. The surprise then is that he is happy even though he's in, in jail. I spent one night in a jail. It wasn't nice. No, it wasn't nice. And Christoph then told us that we will begin to see that his joy is not based on his circumstances. This is contrasted with how we so often live our lives where we base our ground or find the reason for our contentment, our happiness, our joy, only on precisely this, our circumstances. Whereas for Paul, his joy is based on or founded on or caused by his relationship with Christ. Big difference. That's what we learned last week, and that's uh, some of what we will unpack over the next couple of weeks. But today... Um, what we are looking at is what Paul says here in verses 3 all the way to 11, the left-hand side of the, of the column. Now, before I really start, um, I want to share one thing that more than, likely, more than likely you don't know. Some of you will know, because it's a point of fact about this letter that's lost on us today, who we rarely, if ever, write letters. Does anyone write letters... Like actually write letters on a monthly basis? Anyone? No? Gabriella? Okay. Um, no, we don't. Nobody does. And it, because of that, this, this point of fact is lost on us. Because what happens here is this letter follows a particular format that dictates what Paul has to write based on the relationship he has with the Philippians. Now today, we might write cards, we might write emails, and perhaps I'm wrong, I don't know, but we would never feel that there was content that absolutely had to be put in there because of who we were writing to. We would change the style, might make it less formal or informal, depending on the person, and the same with the tone, but the content, that's entirely dictated to by the circumstance, not the person. But in Paul's time, that was different. Who you were writing to dictated some of what you had to put in there. And what that means for us then is that we can kind of, we can look at these letters and we can kind of reverse engineer them to see who he was writing to. And what I mean is you can look at the content of Philippians and even if it's not stated, you can see who or what kind of relationship he had with the people he was writing to. And in this case, Paul clearly considers the Philippians his friends. Now, you might say, well, duh, Richard, of course he's writing to friends. He says all sorts of friendly things to these people. But here is where this knowledge is helpful because friendship in those days uh, was a much, 
Well, it was just different um, than it is, you know, I've got lots of friends here. But in those times, you were very careful of the friendships you entered into. It was almost like a contract was written. Um, If you had a friend and he or she had an enemy, that person must have been your enemy as well. There was none of this, well, that's just between the two of you, you know, I'm I'm, going to let you sort it out and stay out of it. No, 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 no. You had to choose sides. And the side you chose was the one of your friends. Friends were expected to, to benefit one another. The friendship was entered into usually because of a shared goal. And I'm not saying there wasn't genuine affection between the two, but it was shared interests that really drove the friendship. And in Paul and in the Philippians' case, it was the gospel that was the shared interest. Both believing it and obeying it. That's what they entered into this friendship for. Now in this culture of friendship, the friendship letter then became a very common literary, literary form. If I wrote you a friendship letter, I would update you on my circumstances and how I was thinking about my circumstances. I'd also ask you about yours. I'd probably wish you well and I'd express my goodwill, goodwill and I'd probably remind you of the loyalty that we had to one another. And this is what you see throughout the letter, right? And as you listen to myself and Christoph over the next couple of weeks, you will see this back and forth, back and forth, an assumption of a shared cause again and again. And I mean, that's kind of a lot of information, but I mainly say this because, well, it can be hard to follow the flow of Philippians at times. So myself and Christoph, we will make reference to this friendship letter a couple of times as we go through it. And sometimes, you know, you all know, I'm sure you know, that Paul says things, and I'm like, yes, that's lovely, Paul, I agree with you, but why is it here? Uh, Why did that sentence come after that one? That doesn't make any sense. And some of that confusion is because of the style of the letter he is writing. He feels constrained by letter-writing convention to say or to write this or that. Anyway, as I said, Christoph and I will mention that a few times over the next couple of weeks. Now, in today's passage, you don't actually really need to know a secret letter-writing formula to be told that they are friends, because the obvious care that he has for them is clear. But with that said, let's look at what we have here. And what I'll do is I'll try and go through it verse by verse. I'll explain it and then I'll make a few points and, and try and tie it all together. He starts off by saying, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, <clears throat> as I said, there really should be an exclamation mark at the end of that sentence. I thank my God every time I remember you. It's clear he loves these guys. And that might be, I could just leave it there, you know, that's enough to explain the sentence. But I want you to see that Philippi, this church, where this church was, this is Paul's first church. You may remember the story in Acts 16 of Lydia, who was converted through Paul's ministry. And then she opened the doors of her home to him, and then to the the church that was formed there. You may also remember the story of the Philippian jailer who was saved, and then he got his whole family baptized by Paul. In chapter 4, verse 16 of this book, Paul tells us that they sent him help when he was in Thessalonica twice. You, and in Corinthians, maybe you know, he mentions that he was supplied by, in need by the brothers from Macedonia, which includes the Philippians, 
And in fact, Paul says that they gave even beyond what they could afford. And furthermore, we learn from this letter that Paul says they gave beyond, or sorry, we learn from this letter that Epaphroditus has come from the church to visit Paul and to look after him. Now, Paul was in prison in Rome, right? And a prisoner in those days relied solely on um, the goodness of the people outside for their, their supplies. The jailers didn't care about them. So at some stage, the Philippians had learnt that Paul was in prison and sent the men, presumably one of their leaders, on a journey that is equivalent to 800 miles, which is just about, I figured it out this morning, the same as a journey from Coleraine to Cork City and back to Coleraine and then down to Dublin. So it's no small deal, right? Um, and it's no wonder then that he's thankful for them every time he remembers them because they're amazing. Look at all the stuff that they've done with him. God has done a great work in them. And in fact, that's one of the points here in this little prayer, to remind them that God has been working in them. So the next time, right, you hear the pretenders singing that song, I would walk 800 miles. You know this one? Right, you think of Epaphroditus walking all the ways out of love for uh, Paul and um, showing them his love and his love for the gospel. Just remember Epaphroditus. So yes, it's no wonder he is thankful every time he remembers them because of all that they have done for him. But Paul doesn't just see what they've done for him. In the next three sentences, he gives his explanation of why he's thankful. And it's more than just that, what they've done for him. And the three sentences are all actually joined together and the basic trust is fairly simple. Every time that he prays for them, it's an easy prayer because he's full of joy and the reason he's full of joy is twofold. On one hand, he remembers that they've been steadfast in supporting the work of the gospel, as is evidenced by all the things I just laid out. But on the other hand, this same steadfast help of him proves to him that God is in fact well and truly present in their life. To put that last sentence another way, he's got no doubts as to both their continued growth as Christians and no doubts as to their eternal destiny. You see, as a leader, I know how this is, right? When I see ye, or you, do good things for each other, and, and like in, in my own life, you know, I was in hospital recently, and my family and I received all sorts of help, visits, kind words, prayers, you know, that's great. And in the staff meetings, we often talk about different stories that we hear um, of all of you looking out for each other. And in our discipleship group, a number of things have happened recently, and it's been great to see the group respond to these things in a loving manner. And so it should be. That's how it should be. But you know what's greater to me and to Christoph and to your elders is that all of that stuff is evidence that you belong to God. It's one thing to see or even to be on the receiving end of kindness as I was recently and forethought and just care in general. But it's a whole other level of appreciation that we have when we know that the person that we are looking at belongs to God. This warms us when we see this. And furthermore, as Paul does here, when we see that evidence over time, over the years, and I've only been here two years, but as we get to see more and more of that stuff, we get more and more confident that our belief that you belong to God is true. We just get more relaxed about what God is doing in your life, 
the fact that he has you, that he's not going to let you go. And that by far is, is, or that is by far sweeter than anything you could do for me. That knowledge. In fact, it makes what you do even more sweeter because then we know that the actions that we are observing are driven by God. And then, you know, let, let me make the same point, but in reverse. There are also people who show up on Sunday, even every Sunday, whom it's hard to tell if they belong to God. Now, it can be that we just don't know them. And perhaps in their weekly lives, they live for God's glory. You, you always got to reserve judgment. But certainly it's the case that not everyone that me or Christopher the elders have under the care belong to God. And in the same way, evidence of you belonging to God brings us joy, a lack of evidence or even evidence to the contrary, it just fills us with sadness. In the next verse then, verse 7, he preempts what might be their, these people, the Philippians' reaction to all of these positive statements about them. He's aware that he's been quite positive towards them and is conscious that they might say, well, you know, hold on now, Paul. Uh, you know, you're saying all this stuff, but I got this problem in my life. I do this thing, etc., etc." And, I th- they're, you know, they're pushing back against it. And I think that's something that both British and Irish people are very familiar with. Somebody praises you and you get a bit awkward. You don't know what to do. So Paul justifies the intensity of what he's saying by this verse, verse 7. And essentially what he's saying to them is this. It's right for me to feel this way because I hold you very dear to me. And in fact, in the center of who I am, you rest comfortably. And you do so because you've shared the grace of God with me no matter what the circumstance, be it prison or being accused of lies or explaining the gospel to hostile people. There you are with me by the grace of God. Basically, he's saying, look, we've been through a lot. I love you enough to say all these things and to say them truthfully. Or I know you enough, sorry, to say all these things and to say them truthfully. I know the grace of God is in your lives, and I'm happy to say it out loud. I'm happy to say that God will continue to work in you. I've seen him do it. Now, I've I've gone over the idea of, of seeing evidence of the grace of God in people's lives, but there's another thing happening here that I want us to look at. And that is that he's using, the best way to say it is he's kind of using very emotional language. You know, it's rare for us to say to each other, apart from our wives or spouses or close family, I have you in my heart. How many people in the church have you said that to? Or something equivalent to it. And yet Paul happily goes to this place. He doesn't hold back on his feelings for others. He's not maintaining a safe distance. And you know, there's, I should probably say something about boundaries and respecting people and not making them feel uncomfortable. But I, I leave it to you to figure out where the line between creepy and not creepy is, right? <laughs> I trust you. But I think what Paul is demonstrating is that we can and should encourage our brothers and sisters when we see them do well and call it for what it is a work of God in their lives and if you see it, name it and if that means you get kind of close and emotional with a person so be it maybe you could take your first step by coming down to Castle Willem with us getting to know us letting us get to know you and likewise Paul is, is, is willing not just to say encouraging things but to indicate that he deeply, deeply cares for them in fact, he says, he longs for them. 
with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, here is something I must point out. He doesn't say in verse 8 that he longs for them with the affection like Jesus, as in Jesus is his example and he tries to imitate him. He doesn't say that he longs for them by Jesus, as in Jesus is the source of his ability to long for them. He says he longs for them with the affection of Jesus. And I point this out because what this little phrase indicates is that the two things are actually combined. Christ is both our example and our power. And that's good news. Because I know, well I would be, but I know some of you are getting awkward with all this heart talk. And this longing talk. Is that, is that really the goal? You know, mm, I can imagine that. A couple of years ago, I might have said, well, yes, I could probably say some encouraging things to him or to her, but does God really want me to be in a position where I long for these people? Well, yes, he does. Because that's the example of Christ. But like I said, there's good news here. Because the power does not come from you. The power comes from Christ. And, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I preached um, on forgiveness. And some of you gave me good feedback. But one person gave me a critique, and, and she, was, she was dead right. She said, she agreed with everything I said. There's nothing wrong with what I said. But she thought that I'd left out one thing, and that is, although we must forgive, we can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own power. Forgiveness, offering forgiveness to people, especially when they've badly hurt us, when you do that, it's a miracle. And we need the power of Christ. We need the power of the Spirit, the power of God to be able to do it. And it's the same here. To love the people in your church, to love the people in the pews around you in such a way that you can truthfully say, I long for this person. I have you in my heart. You need the power of God. And the good news is, we have it. Every one of us. Well, every one of us who has Jesus has it. When we are saved, we are united to him. Remember our verse from last year? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Second Corinthians 5.17 I'll get it back, don't worry. You see... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We've been born again. Salvation is this gift where we get a new personhood. It is poised within us, waiting to grow, waiting to be expressed, even to the stage where you love people like Christ loved them. That sounds good, doesn't it? And you know, I'll tell you the truth. I was thinking about this this morning. I got multiple failings in my life, many faults that I have not bested, but nearly every one of them could be recategorized under the heading of loving myself more than others. Are you in the same boat as me? Perfection hasn't been attained for any of us yet. That is a reality that Paul is only too well aware of. No wonder then that after saying all that, 
he prays this for them. And what he says is this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, to be clear, he's not praying two things here. He's not praying that they would, we would love more and that we would get more knowledge. He's only praying one thing, that their love will be more knowledgeable. Sounds like a distinction with no difference, but for Paul, the two are not just intimately connected. They're essential to each other. Knowledge without love, you've all come across it. Maybe you've done it. It's cold, it's judgmental, it's even hateful, and it's a whole heap of other things that are at the very least spiritually unhealthy, if not indicative of spiritual deadness. But love without knowledge, well, it's not as dangerous to the community because generally those people who are you know, cold, they just create waves and people stay away from them. But the person who loves without thinking about what God has revealed, without thinking through their actions they actually can create oftentimes more damage. Their love gives them eagerness, even passion. Their motives may be worthy and their intentions honorable, but by blessing what, they should, with what should not be blessed, by accepting what should not be accepted or rejecting what should be, should be accepted, they can even do more damage in the long run. So it's no wonder that he unites the two of them, love and knowledge. The best way to say what he's praying here is he's asking God to fill the Philippians with discernment. Well, maybe there's a better words, but that's the one I came up with. He wants them to be wise about their actions. And love is an action. So it'll make perfect sense that he would pray for this. For we must think about what we do. And Presbyterians, at least since I've become a Presbyterian, they get a bit of slagging for their addiction to uh, forming little groups of people to get jobs done. And once I asked the guy, what did he think Ireland would be like if everyone became a Presbyterian? And he said, we would become an island of committees and subcommittees. We would be drowning in agendas and minutes. And, uh, you know, that doesn't sound too great. But the idea behind it is that God wants us to pursue our loving of others with the best of our thinking. Because really all discernment has been able to, is, is been able to make good, deci- good decisions when we're faced with the complexities of life. You know, very few things are black and white. And the wiser you are, the better decisions you'll make. The more knowledge and insight that God gives us, the better able we'll be able to tell what's good and what is bad, what is true and what is false. And then we'll be able to take all that information and know what the right thing to do is, or the right thing not to do. And before we move on, let, let, me, let me say one other thing here. Paul doesn't pray, right, that we have like a spiritual crisis leading to dramatic changes. He doesn't pray for a miraculous or dramatic intervention in our lives that likewise leads to dramatic changes. He doesn't pray for each one of us to receive specially designed a personal revelation which will spur them on to greater love. Instead, he just prays for wisdom and insight that will lead us on to being pure and blameless at the end of our lives. 
He's painting this picture of how he hopes the Philippians will change over the years. And it's not dramatic. It's not instant. Slow and steady gets you to heaven. Although slow and steady can also get you to hell as well. So you've got to watch that out. Because just because you're wise about what you do doesn't mean that you belong to God. Lastly then, this is nearly it. Paul is praying in this prayer. He gives us another picture of what it looks like when he says, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus and to the praise and the glory of God. This fruit, of course, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, patience, gentleness, self-control. In the end, then, we might look like the ones who are loving and doing this or doing that great thing, but actually, as I was saying earlier, it's the Son of God who empowers us, and it's all for God. This is the ultimate goal of his prayer. This is the ultimate goal of everything, really, the glory of God. And the very, the, the very last thing I want to say to you is this. I, I was talking to a guy during the week, and I was, well, I don't need to tell you what I was talking about, but I was shocked by, I was shocked by what he was saying to me. He used to be a Christian. Well, he, he still is, I suppose. I used to go to church with him and he was giving out to me about something that I believe and uh, he, he wrote to me and just laid into me and I was really shocked at how far he had fallen and it started to make me think about um, I used to think that the church would end up being more and more squeezed out of society and eventually we'd get persecuted in some shape or form I'm not quite 100% sure that's going to happen now I certainly think that we're going to get squeezed out of the public realm where it becomes harder and harder to be a Christian in a public sense. I don't know if our heads are going to be laid on the block and chopped off. I don't think that's coming. But it does seem to be harder to be a Christian in a public way. And I suppose what I wanted to leave you with is that what Paul is doing here is he's painting a picture of our community is not for ourselves. It is one of love, but it is ultimately for the glory of God. And if we don't get this right, if we don't remember this, we'll end up eating ourselves. When really, if we practice this well, if we lived for the glory of God, we would shine like stars in this generation. I, I don't have a problem with apologetics. In fact, I love doing it. I don't have a problem with evangelism. I love doing it. But I think increasingly what's going to happen is people will see our communities They'll see the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. They'll see people who are unafraid to go and look someone else in the eye and say the kind of things that don't come naturally. Things that are encouraging to them, things that are warm. These communities, they'll be addictive. But if we don't remember that it's all for the glory of God, these communities will be self-serving. I think they'll end up eating each other. But if we have it right, if we have the glory of God at the center of every single thing we do, then we have a chance that actually everything will change. Or maybe not. But either way, we're called to do this. That's it.